This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we are going to think globally, beginning in Ukraine, where we had a real shift in the dynamics over the weekend. Then we're going to talk about the death of Queen Elizabeth II and how it reverberated around the world and what we learned from a lot of the conversation around her death last week. I hope that's where we can add something new to a conversation that's unfolding in lots of places. And then outside of politics, we're just going to have a delightful discussion about snacking cake. And I recommend that you stay all the way to the end to hear it. Yeah, if you don't know what snacking cake is, you're missing out. Before we begin... We're starting to work on our calendar for 2023 because we're sort of in the fall. It's going to be Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas in approximately 15 minutes. One of our favorite things to do that we haven't been able to do much for the past couple of years is speak live and in person to groups about communication. We love spending time with student groups or businesses or organizations. And every time we're out in the world, we learn something new that makes this podcast better. And we hope to do real good for the people that we're meeting with. So. We can't do canned presentations. That's not who we are. We really try to understand the needs and goals of the groups that bring us in. And we have eight spots in 2023 for speaking. So if you are interested in learning more, if you're interested in having us come and do a very personalized, very adapted presentation for your group or your organization or your college, please reach out to Elise at Elise at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. And again, it's A-L-I-S-E, y'all, just so you know. A-L-I-S-E. I'll I'll spell it again like we do in our advertisements. So if you are interested in having us come speak, reach out to Elise. Up next, we are going to talk about what's unfolding in Ukraine. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is 
bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The last time we talked about Ukraine here, we described what most observers believed would be a stalemate situation. That dynamic changed pretty dramatically over the weekend as Ukraine launched a counteroffensive. Now, we have known for a while that a counteroffensive was being planned. There was lots of information circulating about it. But it seems that that information was very carefully managed in its presentation to the world and particularly in its presentation to Russia. And what Ukraine ended up doing just vastly changed the board here and made huge advances in the Kharkiv region. And according to the British military, took Russian forces completely by surprise to the point that Russian forces were like just laying down their arms and stealing a bike and clothes from local citizens and getting out of there as quickly as they could. It is a it is a big shakeup in the momentum of this conflict. Meanwhile, in Moscow, they were throwing a big old party for their 850th birthday, which was a bold choice. Mm. That's a bold choice to throw a big old expensive party while you have a war going on. I know you don't want people to know it's a war, but I think at this point it's difficult to hide. I thought the New York Times coverage of the military pro-Russian bloggers who were criticizing Putin for, like, throwing this party, ignoring the needs— really putting the Russian soldiers in an impossible position to the point where they're just, I mean, when you are taking a bike to exit a war, I don't even know what's going on. And they abandon supplies, tanks, ammunition that are now in Ukrainian control. There is a lot of conflicting accounts of how much territory they've reclaimed, but I think it is not under debate that we're no longer talking about a stalemate. They have retaken Kharkiv. They have retaken lots of places where the Russian forces were being resupplied. And, you know, I think there was conversation that some of the offensives in the South were sort of distractions. And now it's like, well, maybe not. I don't we don't really think that was distraction. We just think that they have the capacity to go on the offensive on multiple fronts. And that is clearly what they are doing. And I think that is the piece that I would highlight if you're listening in the United States without deep connections to this part of the world, and maybe you're not even sold on Ukraine as a a front in the battle for democracy throughout the world. If you think, why do I care about this? To me, the answer is knowing that we have invested so many dollars and so many weapons in this region And this weekend shows that Ukraine is making the most of what they are receiving from Western partners. This was coordinated. It is it is competent use of these resources. You know, during the Trump era, 
there was so much discussion necessarily with his first impeachment about corruption in Ukraine. And I'm not saying that there is no corruption in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world. You can't ever be at zero corruption, right? But when you see this type of coordination and this ability to just dramatically out-strategize Russia, you know that these resources are being used toward the objective for which they were intended. And I find that comforting as an American citizen. It strikes me that many of the things we've been talking about from the beginning are still true. And some things have dramatically changed. It is still true that Ukrainians have more to fight for than Russians. It's just it's still true. Now, it is also still true that Vladimir Putin still has a lot to fight for. I was really um, struck by a piece in The Atlantic by Anne Applebaum, who basically argued that, you know, Putin's reason for being in Russia is to, you know, reunite, rebuild the Soviet Union. This is showing that to be an impossible task. And that means that his reason for being, his justification for power is is shaking, is faulty. And he has no real process for succession. That's another way that he has built power inside Russia. And her argument is like, that's con- that should be concerning for all of us because it is hard to imagine, although many people said this out loud, including the both of us on our show at the very beginning, that we cannot imagine a way for Russia to leave and Vladimir Putin to stay in power. And so that's a big nuclear power with no process of succession and an authoritarian leader in deep, deep trouble because of the successes of the Ukrainians. And I think we have to start thinking about that and start talking about that. And what does that look like in a country where the press is not free? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea. But I think that a, th- a through line between this conversation and the one that we're about to have about the death of Queen Elizabeth is this recognition that old empires are are no more. And these efforts to continue to reconstruct them Godspeed. are going to fail because people ha- have seen paths toward freedom and want to be free. And I think particularly in Ukraine, President Zelensky has done a masterful job telling that story every single day. Just he is relentless in his use of propaganda. And I don't say that word to criticize it. He is just relentless in creating this national identity for Ukraine, of weaving this war into Ukraine's national story about who it is as a country and who its people are and and what their symbols represent. And I don't want to be celebratory about these advances, because I think the reporting has done a really good job of emphasizing the cost of this entire war, that these advances never come without cost, that there are people being held at gunpoint as Russian soldiers take their clothes and their bicycles, that there are power outages everywhere as Russia attacks critical pieces of infrastructure. I don't want to be celebratory, but I am encouraged for sure. I would say I lean more towards celebratory, but there is no way to hide the fact that as they advance, they are going to reveal horrific human rights violations and the death of civilians where the Russian military has taken place. But that's why I can't help but be celebratory. They've got to go. People are suffering because of this war, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and they have to go. It's a sovereign nation. 
and they do not belong there. And so the longer they stay and the greater their advances, the worse it is for the Ukrainian people. And the opposite is true. The more territory they lose and the more hits they take, the better it is for the Ukrainian people. And I think the hard part of that is what it means for the Russian people. And I just don't think we have the answer to that and won't for a long time. What it means for the Russian people, including some of those people who were required to go fight this war Mm -hmm. uh, and lied to at many steps along the way about what the war represented and what they would be given in order to fight this war, the kind of leadership, the kind of weaponry, the kind of training. This is really sad, and it's going to reverberate for years, even after the conflict itself is resolved. And most experts are saying this is a big shift in momentum, and also this is far from over. Secretary Blinken here in the United States said, we are entering a really critical new phase of this, and it is very important that Western allies don't turn their backs on Ukraine now. So don't overinterpret this, but also recognize that what Ukraine has accomplished here is very significant. We're going to turn our attention now to another global event that has captured the attention of, it seems, everyone. You can't go anywhere without talking about Queen Elizabeth. So we're going to try to add our thoughts to that conversation up next. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. 
because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Whereas it has pleased Almighty God to call his mercy our late sovereign lady, Elizabeth II, of blessed and glorious memory, by whose decease the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is solely and rightfully to come to the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. We therefore, the Lords spiritual and temporal of this realm and members of the House of Commons, together with other members of Her Late Majesty's Privy Council and representatives of the realms and territories, aldermen and citizens of London and others, do now hereby with one voice and consent of tongue and heart publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom we acknowledge all faith and obedience with humble affection, beseeching God by whom kings and queens do reign to bless his majesty with long and happy years to reign over us. Given at St. James's Palace, the 10th day of September, in the year of our Lord, 2022. God save the king! God save the king! That was the voice of our listener, longtime listener and supporter, Debbie McCall, who happens to be the Midlothian provost, the first female Midlothian provost. And it was very fun to hear her piece, the proclamation of King Charles III. Queen Elizabeth's funeral has been scheduled for September 19th at Westminster Abbey. President Biden and Dr. Jill Biden will attend. And I know that, Sarah, you have lots and lots of thoughts about the queen. I know that your social media posts about her death elicited lots and lots of conversation. So we're going to dig into that now. I think the first thing is to try as best we can to distinguish her as an individual from the role she held. Now, that is very difficult to do with somebody who served that role for 70 years. But she was a human being separate from uh, her role as the sovereign. And, you know, while I 
and many other people expected her her death to come. She was 96 years old. I think it caught everybody a little off guard because just two days earlier, we'd seen her meeting with the new prime minister, Liz Truss. And I thought, well, how appropriate that this woman who has dedicated her life to service seemingly got up off her deathbed, did this one last thing, and then left this life. I just, she as a person... And the choices she made as just a human being fulfilling this incredibly huge job, I think, deserves a moment of reflection. I didn't feel shocked, I think, because after Prince Philip died, I expected that her death would follow. If, you know, if I have the good fortune to be with my husband until our 90s, I I hope that we pass relatively close in time to each other. And so when she died, I just thought, what a what a life. Uh, this this woman who's traveled a million miles to over 170 countries, I think I read, and uh, has seen so much change and transition. And while I am not an American who is particularly enchanted by the royals or particularly interested in the royals, it, it just struck me that like 96 years in a position where you get to see as much as she got to see is extraordinary. As I was reflecting on her life as an individual, I thought she's this really interesting combination of something we've all started to understand, right? Because of social media, because a lot of people like us, you know, do work that is tied up in a social media persona or a brand. You know, we all have our personal brands now. And I thought, well, man, she was out doing that before anybody else, right? Like she, from birth, I think that's sort of the a part of the fascination with royals. Her life was her job and her job was her life. And everything, everything was available for public consumption way before, you know, sort of your average British citizen, much less world citizen could comprehend that. But now that we can comprehend it a little more, I think it is interesting to think about that pressure over the course of a 96 year long life to to that everything everything about you was this weird mix of public and private but i also thought well that but it's the opposite right of what we deal with because in social media when you're when the public and private are mixed conflict and politics is sort of the fuel for that branding right that sort of you want to make a you want to make a mark by doing something. And she was the opposite, right? Like she had to live her life publicly. And then I love the way Andrew Sullivan put it in his newsletter, a job that required her to say or do nothing that could be misconstrued, controversial, or even interestingly human for the rest of her life. Like, can you imagine? I even, as someone who liked the Royals Learn stuff, like that her governess wrote a tell-all memoir about her in her 20s. What the heck? Who was basically her mother because their parents weren't around a lot. And just all these touches, like, that her wedding dress was made from ration vouchers, like the material for her wedding dress was she used ration vouchers, like all these things that we have a language and understanding of now because of social media, but that she has been living for 96 years on this incredibly, incredibly public platform. It's just, it's overwhelming to think about. When I read that Andrew Sullivan quote, which I think I saw in a David French piece, 
I immediately thought of the previews for Roar from Apple TV. Have you seen those previews? It's like a, it's the stories of a bunch of different women. And one of them oh, is yeah. a woman whose husband builds a shelf for her above the fireplace and just sits yes. her up on the shelf. And that is the image that kept coming to my, everything I read about her. I just kept thinking of that woman sitting up on the shelf and how much that must have been the reality for Queen Elizabeth. Especially as I read about how quickly she wanted to get back to work after having children, that trip where she was gone for months and came home and told Charles, not you, and and went to the dignitaries before her own kids. Um, I just, it's hard for me to imagine making those choices, but I don't know what feels like a choice if your life is being the woman on the Mm -hmm. shelf. As an individual, I think that's how she's earned respect, especially over the last couple decades, is because as the pace of change and the pace of media just got faster and faster and faster, she just had some experience that the rest of us didn't have. She had that experience of being inside a thousand-year-old institution having to do TV. Like her coronation was the first broadcast, as we've all probably read in a million different obituaries. They had a Twitter profile. She obviously, during the death of Diana, um, learned a very difficult lesson about what people want as this pace of change and the pace of media change in particular speeds up. But it's like there was something comforting about this steady presence. This person who had lived through so much history had both been in it with us and been filling a very different role inside of it that I think, you know, just earned her an enormous amount of respect, especially in the last several decades of her life. And, you know, she definitely earned it from me. I, I wrote on social media that she was never the one I was, you know, beguiled with. It was definitely Diana when I was growing up that she had this – Diana had this authenticity that the queen seemed to lack. But I think there's been this this shift in my own life. Definitely, listen, from watching The Crown and appreciating some of the things that she went through and had to make really, really difficult decisions or had no decision to make, which I think is even more difficult – And just this enormous respect for somebody who had to sacrifice so much to a public persona. Yeah, I've been thinking about your tribute to her and what connects with me and what doesn't. I thought it was beautifully written, and I know it really spoke for a lot of people. I think I feel more neutral about her even as a person because I just cannot connect with any of her circumstances. I just don't know her. Even as I read profiles, she feels unknowable to me. And it feels wrong to me to take my perspective developed over just my 41 years compared to her 96 and impose my 2022 sensibility on her life in a positive or a negative way. It just feels out of reach to me. I think it's interesting to consider the role of the monarchy in Britain. I think it's interesting to talk about the history of that and where it might go next. I think it's really interesting to consider the difference where between Charles' starting point and her starting point. But as far as personal affection or disdain, I just can't find much of either for her. Uh, I I respect her life well-lived, but I don't have any kind of emotional attachment because she does just feel like she represents another era and a a perspective that is so far from mine. I, I can't plug into it. 
I think I have the respect because I'm so fascinated. You know, regular listeners of the show know this, that I'm not just fascinated by royalty. I'm very fascinated by fame and what it does to people. And often it doesn't do great things. It's a hard, hard life to be globally recognized. I don't think I'm being dramatic when I say it kills people pretty regularly. It is an incredibly difficult psychological task. And when I think, wow, she's done it for so long. She did it her whole life. And I think, now it's a different kind of fame. It's not a fame that requires the vulnerability of performance in the same way that a musician or an actor or actress. I think musicians have it the hardest because of the vulnerability required to to sing and perform. But it still is, at least they have a role to sort of hide behind a creativity to hide behind. I think she had creativity. I think you see it in her in her fashion and her choices. But I think that it just to survive it, to survive it and to be a person who, again, not completely knowable, but I think that's its own accomplishment in a role like that. And to have clearly provided an enormous amount of um, steady comfort um, to millions and millions of people is just it's it's endlessly fascinating to me what people do in roles like that. Now, you know, as we talk more about the monarchy, which I think there's no way not to talk about this institution when you have the longest reigning sovereign um, reign come to an end. When you talk about the monarchy, you know, and this is a question I ask about fame. Is it too much? You know, this is the argument I made on our premium channels um, the day she died, which is if I was a anti-monarchist, anti-royalist, I would I would make the argument that it's too much to ask of these people. It's not fair. It's a trap. I think Carrie's right when he described it as a trap. And just because she was able to navigate it so well doesn't mean anybody else should be asked to just because of who they were born to. I think that's probably true. I also struggle with the cost-benefit analysis in the modern era for the citizens of the United Kingdom especially given how much transition and upheaval uh, mm-hmm. happens in and around them. And and when I think about Brexit in particular and the, the declarative statement that the country seemed to be wanting to make, but also uh, without a lot of reality attached to it, Bre- you know, Brexit has felt to me a little bit like the Dobbs decision in the United States. Like it, it was a symbolic rallying cry, and then you get it, and you think, "Oh, wait a second! I'm, I didn't mean mm-hmm. this. I didn't mean this, or this, or this, or actually any of it, except for just the symbolism part." It is hard for me to imagine that the monarchy and everything that it represents. I'm not talking about the family. I'm just just talking about mm-hmm. what that represents and the baggage that it carries from the history of the British Empire and all that it took from people and stole and all of the human dignity that was crushed under the British Empire. It's just hard for me to imagine that it makes sense to continue it. And I do not envy even though I, I don't feel any particular affection for Charles, I do not envy the task of a new king. And king even sounds harder to carry in some ways than queen to me at this moment in history. I do not envy him trying to figure out if there is a healthy place for it and what that healthy place looks like. I think this is, again, a multi layer difficult 
analysis, right? Because you have the role of the monarchy to the British people. I am talking about Great Britain. Mm -hmm. I am not talking about Scotland, Ireland. We're going to get to those places. Um, I'm not talking about the Commonwealth. I'm talking about the British people. And you see a lot of questioning among the British people. I thought the polling around the generations was really interesting. That U.S. 65 plus, 74 percent think the institution of the monarchy is good for Britain, compared to 24 percent for 18 to 24-year-olds. So that's going a conversation that's going to continue. I think as soon as Queen Elizabeth is laid to rest, you will see this flare up from the criti- from the critics of the monarchy, and and the criticisms are fair. Again, I you know for me, I think Matt Iglesias wrote a really interesting thing <laughs> that constitutional monarchies like they they're kind of they fit a need, and it's not a logical sort of analysis that gets you there. I think that's what Andrew Sullivan's getting at. It's an emotional need, and it does seem to fit a need inside even a democracy. I don't think the benefits outweigh the cost to the human beings inside that institution. But again, they're going to have this conversation, and that is a conversation for the British people to have. You know, like, that's fine. You know, I don't, I think it is tough. It's a tough nut to crack. I do think that it is, is doing it is doing something. It is meeting a need. She met it exceptionally well. I'm willing to give Charles a chance. I felt found myself feeling this sort of begrudging sympathy for him, even though he has not always been my favorite. But at this point, to see someone, you know, come to a role that they've been preparing for their whole life, it's hard not to feel like something for them um, at the realization of this moment. I mean, I think this this conversation is important for them. I mean, you see some of that need playing out in American politics very clearly. Absolutely. I'm loath to mention Queen Elizabeth and Donald Trump in the same sentence ever. But you you see in the people who love Donald Trump a yearning for some of what the monarchy provides, especially if you watch coverage of like the rallies for him and the apparel and the uh, deification of him. I just saw someone talking about a book that was being passed around at a convention that that like basically talked about Trump as a, a Christ-like figure. And and as you look at Lord. that stuff, you can see this desire for a, a leader who feels like defender of the faith and superhuman in some ways and a national symbol. He is often depicted in imagery like wrapped in flags. So I think that need exists, at least among some Americans and and people throughout the world. She definitely met a need to help establish a healthy national identity for some parts of her life. What do you do next with that? I have no idea. I like the way the royalist historian David Starkey described it in an article I read called it British Shintoism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's it. It's like a secular religion. Now, we can talk about the need for religion, but it's not like religion is a, <laughs> always a net positive either. And I think that's what people struggle with. And I think as you move out from the British people specifically into the territorial conflicts, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, you know, the Queen passed away at her Scottish estate in Balmoral. She was known to sort of be relieved when Scotland did not vote for independence in 2014. I think that, but I think that's coming. I think it's coming. I think Scottish independence, Irish independence, you know, I think that those are going to be some pretty dramatic changes that are, to a certain extent, inevitable. 
And so when she when we have this break in this moment to really stop and think, wait, what does this mean? Especially for the people there, I think that 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 conversation and not just a conversation, those changes are going to come. I will just add that the fact that that drive for Scottish independence began pre-Brexit tells me there's something inevitable about Scotland's independence as well. And I think Brexit exacerbates the the drive there. And I, I will say for Charles, he was very plain spoken and often attended in Queen Elizabeth's stead uh, ceremonies where the, the monarchy was declared irrelevant to different mm-hmm. places around the world and acknowledged it fairly graciously and was often uh, straightforward in discussing the stain on history that treatment of, of British colonies creates. So I, I think he is well suited to manage that as it inevitably comes. And I would I wonder if he feels I wonder what he feels about that. Well, I will say as as we talk about this, as we talk about the Commonwealth, I was very frustrated by some of the conversations inside our post and other places on social media. First and foremost, I don't think people understand the Commonwealth. I did not understand the Commonwealth until I'm embarrassed to admit this. The crown. I didn't understand the history. I mean, I knew in a big picture way that her reign, like the end of her reign is not the beginning of this conversation. Her reign was characterized by these changes and by the shrinking dramatically of the quote unquote British Empire. You know, there was an interesting write up where they talked about how the language at her coronation was so different from her father, who was crowned the emperor of India. By the time she was crowned, India was independent. And so she did she didn't have these roles in some of the language queen of this realm and all of her other realms and territories, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith, set up this sort of internal conflict because, you know, all this conversation around decolonization, there are no more British colonies. The Commonwealth is an organization of sovereign states. These places are independent. Now, they have her as a sovereign. And is that a symbol of colonization and white supremacy? I think it's hard to argue that it's not. But the Commonwealth itself was problematic for her. She pushed for this. She pushed for this idea that they are sovereign nations, but we are an organization of these states held together. She famously got into conflict with Margaret Thatcher, where Margaret Thatcher said, you know, your your loyalties lie to the Commonwealth and not to the British people. And that's a problem because she was pushing for independence and allowing independence in some of these places and some of these changes that, you know, at times the government were opposed to and people saw as too political. I'm not saying that Queen Elizabeth was some sort of advocate for change. She was not. But I do think that there is some real confusion about what the Commonwealth means and what her role inside of it was. So I think where your interest in fame and royalty intersects with me is with my interest in death. <laughs> and I always am fascinated when someone of stature and notoriety dies at sort of everyone's need to issue a statement about it. Everyone, including people who don't have to issue statements about anything, right? But we all kind of feel like we need to put our personal tribute out there, use our voice to weigh in on the situation, commemorate in some way what is a a personal loss to people who knew them and and a shared loss to people who 
I interacted with some form of a person. So I was not surprised by the the vehement response to tributes to the queen that she is a representative of kind of everything that's that's been wrong uh, in the in the history of the UK. I do just wonder, I wonder what a healthy response is to that kind of question. I wonder how we can kind of navigate what we call here the course of 10,000 voices where you have everybody weighing in and you understand that that we are coming from a lot of different places in our viewpoints and many of them are very, very personal and filled with emotion and filled with connection to ancestry. What is a healthy response to that outcry when you feel, as you do, Sarah, a huge amount of respect for the queen and a real separation between Elizabeth the person and Elizabeth the monarch? I had a couple realizations based on those moments that what's healthy, what are we doing here, what happens? I think it's a couple things. One, the bigger the event, the more people feel called to respond and the more incendiary your take needs to be in order to get attention, right? Because everyone's saying something. So if you want people to pay attention to what you're saying, it needs to pack a punch. And... And I think you see that, right? I also think I'm trying to always keep in mind, which is sort of what I was naming even in my my post about Queen Elizabeth, which is the difference between authenticity and a type of wisdom. I think often, just because of my own personality, you know, authenticity always sort of has the packs the most emotional punch for me. And I think that there is there is truth in an authentic response, and there is no way to argue with someone's experience inside an institution. You know, when I say, like, people are confused about the Commonwealth, well, obviously the people on the ground in these Commonwealth nations are not confused. And I thought some of the best coverage were interviews on the ground in Jamaica and Barbados and these places that have reexamined their relationship and how they felt about the queen And I think even in a a broader world community, I mean, she was a global figure. And so many people are going to have very emotional responses to her, including me. And I think, though, the, the ones that really hit for me that sort of pushed past that emotional response, there was a really beautiful post from Marcy Alvis Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends on Instagram that I thought did that, like just pushed past you know, or named. That's what was so, I think, affecting about her post and what pushed it to me into that sort of, this is a this is a wise take, right? Is that she named that authentic emotional reaction. She named the problems with the institution. She said, like, this represents harm and chaos and oppression to so many, and then pushed, pushed, kept pushing it, kept pushing it into another space and not stopping. I mean, that's what I, something I try to do in my own life. I don't want to just stop. I don't think there's a way to block an authentic emotional reaction, but I don't want to stop there. And I think in these, these moments where we're all really experiencing something together, and because she was a global figure for seven decades, that is a global experience, right? And I think being able to to name that and to say, okay, well, here's the authentic emotional response. What do we want to take from that? That's what I'm always looking for in those moments, because I think when we get mired 
and the the more reactive responses, it just becomes it just becomes a real whirlpool, you know, like and everybody's getting spun up and getting spun up and getting spun up. And it just doesn't I don't think it takes us anywhere except for in circles. I like the whirlpool metaphor because that is what I always feel myself resisting. I just basically went offline the day the queen died because I I don't like that feeling. I don't think it does anything healthy for me. At the same time, I do want to learn from those perspectives. I want to learn from I want I want to learn from the people who adore the queen and from people who despise the queen and everything in between. I want to learn what I can learn. I don't want to get lost in the swirl of the proper take. And, and and everyone searching relentlessly for the proper take. So I will say as a as a global citizen, even though I acknowledge all the problems with the monarchy, there is something sad to me. You know, Elizabeth Holmes named this in her piece that this is the last queen that most of us will see in our lifetime. We're back to men for at least the next three generations. And should the should the institution itself survive? And that makes me sad. I was always sort of struck and encouraged, maybe even a little empowered by this woman who was there throughout so much of history, just there, present, being present, not showing up like to fill the role of a man, especially early in her reign, which was a very, very different time for gender and politics. And it just it makes me sad that that has come to an end. Um, as happy as I was for her that her her service had closed, I looked at my husband at one point this week and was like, "I already kind of miss her. <laughs> I already kind of miss her." Um, I think she had become sort of this like global grandmother figure in the best possible use of the term. This sort of elder, this world elder that was continuity and duty and responsibility, and this sense that. We will go on, you know, sort of that British mentality too. that that, you know, carry on. We'll carry on. And she did. And it is sad a little bit that that's come to an end. I think that's so interesting because we so often talk about the elders in American politics quite differently. And so you you can see the uniqueness of the role wrapped up in that sense that, yes, I actually do want a 96-year-old person who has seen a whole lot and whose capacity has changed throughout her time in the role. There's just a lot of there's just a lot to think about when it comes to the queen. I'm glad we got a few minutes to think about her here. Well, and I think you see that with people who surpass that role in American politics. I think Jimmy Carter is, has filled that role. I think he has passed on into elder, elder in our in our sort of national identity and global community too. Not anywhere near the level of the queen, but I think again, you see that need for that. You see that we are hungry for that, and I will be grateful to her, even as somebody who you know was only alive for half of hers <laughs> for the role that played. Next up, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We always end by going way outside of politics because we're all just people and we want to spend some time being people. And today we are people who love cake. Mm -hmm. We had a post over the summer asking folks what what their favorite thing of the summer was. And Aubrey, I just happened to see her comment among a sea of comments, said she bought a cookbook called Snacking Cakes and has been making one every week. Aubrey said, I know this sounds like extra work to some people, but for me, it's been my only creative outlet lately and I really look forward to it. So I immediately found snacking cake, bought it, started making a snacking cake. And I'm with you, Aubrey. I make a new one every Sunday and it sits on the counter all week and it's a joy. 
I really respect you and Aubrey's self-control. We are making three to four snacking cakes over here in the Holland household. No week. kidding. Well, you have how three boys. You, you have three how boys. Do you, six and say, it sits on your counter for a week. What yeah. are you even talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay, so listen, y'all. I also have the cookbook. We need to break down because the author of this cookbook, Yasi Arefi, has not just created a cookbook. She has created a life philosophy. She lays out that snacking cake, it's little. It's like an eight-inch, eight-inch square, eight-inch round. It's easy. It's one mixing bowl. No mixers, no KitchenAid. You mix it in one bowl. You put it in the pan. Often you do not need an icing. There is no icing. You just make the cake. And she says it's a snacking cake because it can be warmed up for breakfast. It can be a little afternoon tea snack. I just, there's so much there. There's so much there that I think this is, she has named through snacking cakes how I want to live my life. Easy, delightful but not overwhelmed. Like, we don't have to dive all the way in. It doesn't have to be this overconsumption situation. I mean, I think we've made, like, probably five or six already, and we've had the cookbook, like, a week. The recipes are simple, but they also are interesting. So I just made her a whole wheat strawberry snacking cake, and it's a it's basically a vanilla cake with, with strawberries, but it has, like, a big amount of cardamom in it. And it just gives it a little something. And my kids like all of them. The chocolate and peanut butter is good. There are a lot of fruit-based snacking cakes. The variety is awesome. So you don't feel like you're eating the same thing every week. But it is basically the same method. You're whisking some eggs and some sugar. Then you're adding your dry ingredients and sticking it in the oven after you bang it on the counter to release the bubbles. It's just, it's it's nice. It's delightful to make. It's delightful to eat. It's all there. It's all there. It's a life philosophy, I'm telling you. I love it so much. There's even three sections. There's the fruit section, the like, what does she call it? Toasty, warm and toasty cakes. And then there's the chocolate cakes. And they're all great. I'm going to I'm gonna transition from the fruit section to the warm and toasty section, too. I feel that coming, the advent of fall. I mean, she could write one that's like around the seasons of the year. I would be down for that. I would also purchase that cookbook. I love it. I love it so so much. Also, so easy to whip up if you're like going to a, like a book club or a little easy event. Yasia Rafi, what a gift you've given the world. Which is your favorite that you've made so far? I just made the pear cranberry hazelnut. Amos declared that the best one. He really, really liked that one. I also really, really like the oatmeal chocolate chip because oatmeal chocolate chip cookies are my favorite. And so the oatmeal chocolate chip cake was just checking all the boxes for me. It's lemony olive oil for me. That cake was fantastic. I've liked every one I've made since then, but that was the first one I made. I served it uh, not to a book club, but to my bachelorette watching club. And everyone went back for seconds. You know, if women are getting a second piece of cake in a right. group of other women that, that they really like it, it is. it was fantastic. So thank you, Aubrey, for sharing the good mm-hmm. gospel of snacking cake with us. We will put a link to Snacking Cake in the show notes for all of you who need it in your lives now. And I encourage you to be one of those folks. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll be back with you on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. 
Hallie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.